0: an opportunity to meet uh, several of you. Um, and uh, for those of you who have not, I would like to, uh, to uh, get to know you after service. Uh, we do have a meal prepared uh, directly after service. It is breakfast, which is one of my favorite meals, no matter what time of day you have it. And uh, you are welcome to stay and join us uh, for that. I am not the normal preacher. Uh, I'm one of the elders here uh, and uh, help teach, uh, our, uh, our former preacher has gone to another work, and we are in the process of uh, hiring for a new, a new minister. Um, one of the books that we went through, um, well, we didn't actually go through the book, did we, Jerry? One of the topics we went through on Wednesday night while Joel was here was that of a Sunday school catch-up. And that book has finally came out uh, by Focus Press, uh, by Jack Wilkie. And I got a copy of it the other day. I'm about a quarter of the way through it. Uh, very good book. It goes kind of back to the Bible basics. If you have a particular topic you want to look at, uh, you can look in the back and say priesthood is number 46. You turn over to page or to, uh, number 46 and it's got a whole bunch of scripture and information about priesthood uh, from both the Old Testament and the New uh, it's laid out in a chronological order if you want to read it straight through, which is the way that I've been reading it, but a very good book to have, so I just wanted to mention that. You see the uh, the slide there, and the title of our lesson today is We've Got Issues. And you, you think about that, and um, I want it to, to be clear that that could mean all kinds of we've got issues, okay? Okay. Uh, It's important to note that maybe you as an individual have issues. Um, Maybe us as a congregation may have issues. Maybe us as a state, as a country, and even as the world can have issues. You know there are several things that are important for us to note uh, in relationship to issues. That is Our physical health is important, our spiritual health is important, and our mental health is important. All of those are very important um, issues that one might have. And I kind of want to talk about all of those uh, this morning. So uh, if you'll bear with me, I only have 15 pages of notes. But not to worry, that's notes for me, so the sermon's not going to be that long. Thank you. Thank you, Nan. So uh, Christians today are confronted with many conflicting views about morality. We have a culture in the world, and oftentimes locally and uh, nationwide, of much different culture than we used to have. Now, culture in itself is about what is acceptable within a, a particular people, a particular nation, a particular group of people. And we know that as time changes, culture changes as well. But it's important for us as Christians to look back to what the culture should be in relationship to our Christianity, and relationship to what God would have us to do as a Christian. People have different opinions concerning what is right and wrong in the world and in the culture in which we live. What once was generally accepted as good and true is now challenged by many people in the world. And oftentimes these groups are very small groups with very loud voices. And they get together as that group and they want to speak loud from the the hilltop so that everyone else is forced to hear. And that means that it is difficult for us as Christians sometimes to navigate life. Governments are redefining the concept of marriage of gender businesses are often operate with ethics that sanction lying and stealing because many people look to other things other than a standard by which they get their difference between right and wrong How does one know what is right and wrong in the areas of morality? Well, I hope by the end of this lesson this morning we all understand or have a better understanding or a reminder of what morality looks like in reference to the standard of God's Word. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong in and of themselves, but the standard of right and wrong often differs. The first of which is people's Feelings. Now, I would venture to say that every one of us feel different ways about different things. Would you agree with that? And if we all went by how we feel about a particular thing, I would venture to say we would probably have close to over a hundred different ways of interpretation of God's Word, Or morality as a whole, if each one of us individually goes by how we feel. If it feels good, it must be right, is the mantra of the world. The Bible warns against trusting in feelings. There is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs chapter twenty-eight and verse twenty-six. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself; it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah ten and verse twenty-three. Go back to your Bible in Genesis chapter six and verse five. Genesis chapter six and verse five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And come over to Mark chapter 7 in verse 21. Mark chapter 7 in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within that defile a man. If we go by only our feelings, we will be deceived. We will go in many different directions, not all paddling in the same direction, and we'll be even more confused than we already are by all of the different things that are thrown in our face by our culture and world today. Many people have destroyed themselves by following their feelings. The second standard by which people often uh, want to to look at is their conscience. And you know old Jiminy Cricket in... uh, In Pinocchio, he said, always let your conscience be your guide. Jiminy Cricket should have gotten a little bit more wisdom. Because we understand that your conscience can be seared by evil thoughts of men and by evil thoughts from within. One's conscience is not always reliable. Paul had served God with a good conscience throughout his life, Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. Even at a time when he was persecuting Christians, Acts chapter 26 verses 9 through 11, he thought his feelings and his conscience said, What I'm doing in persecuting Christians is right, but we know that it was wrong. Our conscience is like a clock which works properly only if it is set properly. We're having some uh, daylight savings time come pretty soon. We'll be, we'll be uh, springing forward with our clocks. But uh, if you have an appointment at a certain time after that occurs and you haven't set your clock properly, guess what? You're not going to be there on time. You're going to be there when? Early. No, you're going to be late if you don't set it forward. How about using our friends as a guide? Is that a good idea? So we talked about feelings in our conscience. How about our friends? Well, everyone else is doing it. So it must be okay if everyone else is doing it. But consider the words of Jesus in describing the end of the majority. Matthew chapter 7 Verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many that go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few there be that find it. Let's follow the crowd. Let's follow our friends. They've got to be right, and everyone else is doing it, so let's just go ahead and do the same thing. If you followed the majority in Noah's day, you would have perished in the flood. In Joshua's day, you would have perished in the wilderness. So following the majority can be like lemmings running over a cliff. We'll follow them to our detriment and to ultimately our spiritual death. How about following our ministers? Or anyone in the religious world, those of preachers, priests, rabbis, etc., says that what I'm doing is okay. They reason that surely these men of God could not lead them astray. Yet notice the warnings given by Jesus, Paul, and Peter. Religious leaders can be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, Matthew chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, what happens? They both fall in the ditch. There will be false teachers with destructive ways, that come about in the world 2 Peter chapter 1 our second Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 following the wrong minister can lead to corruption so that can't be the standard by which we follow either so we're not supposed to follow our feelings only we're not supposed to follow our conscience only we're not supposed to follow our friends only we're not supposed to follow our ministers only so what do we do It is clear that many people accept as authority and morality should not be the guide for Christians. So what do we do? The Christian's authority and morality is that Jesus has all authority. In heaven and on earth, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, in all areas including sexual mores and behavior, Ephesians chapter four, verses seventeen through twenty-four. If you'll turn over there to the book of Ephesians, chapter four, we'll begin reading in verse seventeen, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk in the rest of the Gentiles, walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in futility in their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness in their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness and work of uncleanness, uncleanliness, and greediness. But you who have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. He will one day judge all mankind. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31 For the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands every man everywhere to what? Repent. Stop sinning on purpose. Have a change of mind. And the standard of judgment will be His words. John chapter 12 and verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus is the ultimate standard of judgment of authority and morality. Amen? Not our feelings, not our conscience, not our friends, not our ministers. God's Word and Jesus' words there contained in are the standard for our morality. No matter how many people speak about changing things in culture... No matter how many sins become acceptable and mainstream, the Christian's job is to look back to God's Word to make sure that our morality is based on Scripture. Therefore, we have a need to speak up, to let it be known that the teachings of culture sometimes do not measure up to God's morality. Jesus delegated authority to his apostles while on earth. To receive them is to receive him, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40, and John chapter 13 and verse 20. They were sent as ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. To ensure reliability, Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14 and verse 26. The Spirit would guide the apostles into all truth, John chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. Thus the apostles proclaimed the whole counsel of God, Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. Christians were to accept the apostles' words as what? As truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 37. So the apostles' doctrine is the Christian standard for authority. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Their authority pertains to areas of morality. As Paul solemnly charged the church of Thessalonica... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, addressing sexual immorality and marital faithfulness, he gave them instruction of what they should and should not do. As he likewise wrote to the church in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32 that we just read, addressing lewdness, greediness, and deceitful lust, lying and anger, stealing, and foul language. Morality is an integral part integral part, of the truth that is in Jesus. It is necessary and it is important to the Christian to look to God's word for the standard by which we live. Not to look to culture, not to look to feelings, not to look to your conscience or your friends, but to look to God's word. Many people go through life confused about morality. They constantly wonder, is this right or wrong for me to do? And oftentimes we'll go to God's Word in an opposite way to try to defend the practice that they're doing that may not be in accordance to God's will at all because they take Scripture out of context. They stumble their way through life making wrong choices with terrible consequences. And ultimately, if you do that all your life and you never repent and you never come to the truth and the knowledge of the truth, what's going to happen to you in the end? Eternal punishment, not eternal reward. The Christian need not be confused about morality. The truth is in Jesus Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 21. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. There are many issues in the world. There are many issues in the church. There are many issues in our state and our country But we need to look to God's Word for the answers to these issues. Some of the issues that the world faces today, sexual immorality, the institution of marriage, divorce and remarriage, homosexuality, abortion, domestic violence, euthanasia, gambling, alcohol, tobacco, immodest apparel, dishonesty, mental health issues. All of these things be of the world. They can all lead us astray. It's important to note that there is indeed a mental health crisis in our nation and in the world. Too often times in my daily job, I see many people with mental illness that haven't been dealt with. The vast majority of individuals with substance use in the U.S. are not receiving treatment. 15.35% of adults had substance use in the past year. Of them, 93.5% did not receive any form of treatment. Millions of adults in the U.S. experience serious thoughts of suicide with the highest rate among multiracial individuals. The percentage of adults reporting serious thoughts of suicide are 4.84%, totaling about 12.1 million people. Over 1 in 10 youth in the U.S. are experiencing depression, that is severely impairing their ability to function at school, at work, at home with family or in their social life. 16.39% of youth ages 12 through 17 report suffering from at least one major depression depressive episode. In the past year, 11.5% of youth, over 2.7 million youth, are experiencing severe major depression. Why? Look at the culture in which we live. Would you be confused if you were a young person? The standard comes from so many people. Even sometimes maybe their teachers in school may lead them down roads that they don't need to be led. And when they get to college, radical college professors and things of that nature who want to press an agenda upon our young people, they get that from their college professors. No wonder they are confused. No wonder they are confused. Almost a third or 23.2% of adults with a mental illness reported that they were not able to receive the treatment they needed. 42% of adults with an acute mental illness reported that they were unable to receive necessary care because they could not afford it. That's a sad thing in the society in which we live 6.34% of youth in the U.S. reported a substance use disorder in the past year. And that is equivalent to over 1.5 million youth in the U.S. who met the criteria for an illicit drug or alcohol use disorder. Remember the days when we were growing up? Just say no. Just say no. Last statistic I want to share with you, and this was from a study that came out last year in 2023. 59.8% of youth with major depression do not receive any mental health treatment. Asian youth with major depression were least likely to receive specialty mental health care with 78% reporting that they did not receive mental health services in the past year and the state of South Carolina one of our neighbors the lowest ranking state nearly 8 in 10 youth with depression do not receive care we've got issues we've got major issues Those things that are in our culture oftentimes carry over into where? The church. And we as Christians have to study our Bibles and make proper application of those things that we study so that that we don't end up in the same situation of many of these individuals. Yes, our physical health is important. Our mental health is important too. Ultimately, the most important thing is our spiritual health. Where are you getting the things that are necessary for your spiritual health? I hope that it's from God's Word. I hope that it's when we come together and worship in spirit and in truth. I hope that while you study your Bibles on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings, that you're not only stopping there for an hour and a half of study of the Bible every but that you're studying on your own on a daily basis to make sure what you're doing is according to God's will. We've got issues. Let us, as Christians, be a light in a society that is so dark. Let us show by example how things should go and how things should be. If you're following the teachings of Jesus Christ, let us as Christians let our light shine that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. We've got issues, but we're going to have bigger issues if we don't address the issues that we face today. Ultimately, it boils down to the individual's choices, doesn't it? As an individual, you may have issues. You may be looking to the culture or the world to give you answers. You may be looking to your feelings, your friends, your conscience, even religious leaders as answers. But be looking to God's Word for the answers that you need in your life. There may be some here this morning who have never responded to the Lord's invitation, who have never become a Christian. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You must hear the Word of God. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Confess Him with the mouth that He is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Stop sinning on purpose. As we mentioned before, the time of ignorance and not knowing God overlooked but now commands every man everywhere to repent. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. And you're to be buried in that watery grave of baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Do we have any responsibility after we become a Christian? Absolutely. We're to look to God and His Word for the strength and guidance that we need to remain faithful unto death to receive that crown of life. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Keep living your life as a Christian. And as many of you know, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ will continually cleanse you from your sins if you walk in the light as He is in the light. There may be some who have committed public sin and need to repent publicly. Or perhaps you just need the prayers and thoughts of your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a need to respond to the Lord's invitation to become a Christian or to repent of your sins, won't you come forward as together we stand and as we sing?
1: appreciate the opportunity to speak this afternoon I will say we have in the last few weeks had quite a bit of uh, talent reflected in the men that have brought lessons and it's um, humbling to me to be invited to speak as well if you will open your Bibles to John chapter 15 We're going to remain there for the lesson. In John chapter 15, you'll recall the verse that you see on the screen where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's a very familiar metaphor that Jesus uses and he goes on to say that we are to abide in him. Abiding in If you look up, the definition has several meanings, one of them being to tolerate someone, which I don't think is what Jesus means when he says for us to abide in him. Another one is to live or to dwell, which is the meaning that is used when Jesus says to abide in him. For example, Lisa and I abide at 584 Canyon Edge Lane in Hickson. That's where we live. That's where we dwell. Many of you have used the term to talk about your home as your humble abode. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about abiding in him. He often used the term abide to describe the Christian's relationship to him. And that's what we want to focus on today, is we want to focus on the Christian's relationship with Christ as seen in John chapter 15. The metaphor of the vine is a theme that's not just seen in the New Testament, but it's seen in the Old Testament as well. God, through Jeremiah, said that Israel was a choice vine that he had planted. So the description of Israel as a vine was used in the Old Testament. The Old Testament bears out the fact that Israel was sustained and fed by God as long as they were living in him or abiding in him. In John 15, Jesus refers to himself as the vine, and he refers to God as the vine dresser. The word picture would have been very familiar to Jews as Palestine had many, many vineyards, so they would have understood the allegory of the vine. New Testament writers encouraged Christians to remain in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 read: As you therefore have received Christ the Lord, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Also abiding in Jesus depends upon holding on to his teachings. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 says, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father." Abiding in Jesus also requires living like him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he did. So we see here for a healthy Christian to thrive, being rooted and fed by Christ is vital. Our purpose must be led and shaped by his purpose, or we cannot properly abide in him. We need to be completely plugged in, as as some would say. Without utter dependence on him, we forfeit many of the blessings he has in store for us. So to lay a little context before we get to the main points of the lesson, think about where we are in John. In John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, these four chapters actually cover the upper room. They cover Jesus preparing his disciples for the events of the next few days. He warns them that he's about to leave, and he knows that when he leaves, the events that are forthcoming are going to be traumatic. He knows that many of them are going to have their faith shaken. He knows that many of them are going to have difficulty following in the face of such violence, in the face of such persecution. And so he's preparing his apostles and his disciples for those events. So in that, in chapter 15... Most often, we utilize the verses, the first eight verses, to talk about what happens with unfruitful branches. But the chapter actually has to do with the benefits of abiding in Jesus. So, what are those benefits? Today, I want to talk about. Let me find the clicker. I want to talk about three benefits of abiding in Christ. The first one is bearing eternal fruit. Abiding in Christ enables fruitful living. To say it more clearly, remaining in Jesus enables believers to glorify God by living fruitful lives, and we cannot fulfill God's plan through self-effort or through human willpower. I want to read verses 1 through 8, if you'll open your Bibles. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abideth not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So we see here in verse 4 and 5, let me read it again. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. See, even though abiding in Jesus enables us to have fruitful lives, those fruitful lives depend on being plugged in to Jesus as the vine. The agricultural metaphor used here, they would have understood that God, as the vine dresser, planted the vine, that He provided proper soil, proper water, proper nutrition through Jesus to us as the branches. Therefore, if we are not connected to the vine, we're not receiving that nutrition. We're not receiving that sustenance that we need to survive, and not just survive, but to thrive as Christians. The picture of bearing fruit, while it may cover many aspects of Christian life, it definitely includes developing Christian character, effective Christian service, and mission. These result from abiding in Christ and not from human effort. Let me say that again. Christian character, Christian service, and Christian mission result from abiding in Christ and not from my own effort. It's through Christ that I am shaped into what God would have me to be. If you look at verse 11, I'll read that again. Or read that, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy may might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Verse eleven says that when we abide in Christ and bear fruit, our joy is full. There is great joy in bearing fruit for our Lord, and our joy will cause us to want to share what we have with others. If you think about those times that you've experienced The joy of Christianity, I would have you look back to maybe the day you were baptized. If you recall, when you come up out of that water, you think about how happy you are to be pure and free from sin. And I've often joked with with Lisa, we've talked about when we were baptized, that one of the things that was on our heart after being baptized is we thought of, who in our family do I need to evangelize? Who needs to be saved? Who do I need to share the gospel with? It's a shame sometimes that we lose that fire over time and that we lose that eagerness to share the gospel with other people because of what we have as Christians. So I would encourage us to allow abiding in Christ to enable us to have fruitful lives. Second, obedient love. Abiding in Jesus Christ empowers our love for others. Go back to John chapter 15, starting in verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So remaining in Jesus empowers believers to love each other. First off, not as the world loves, but as Christ loves. If we think about how the world loves, the world is very superficial. The world is very wishy-washy with how it loves us. If we don't agree with things, then we are cut off. If we have issues with the world, it's easily fickle and will turn on us. Christ is not that way. Christ loves us even as scripture says, while we were yet sinners, he laid down his life for us. So he loves us even while we're in the wrong. His love is eternal. His love is everlasting. So we must love as Christ loves and not as the world. If we love Christ, as we just read, we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments, we love each other as Christ loves. Think about that for a second. If we keep his commandments to show that we love Christ, then we will love each other as Christ does. So how does Christ love? First off, sacrificially, as seen in 1 John 3.16, where we read, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And notice back in chapter 15 of of, uh, John, he talks about what kind of love. He talks about, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he says, ye are my friends, indicating that he was to lay down his life for not only the apostles and disciples that he was speaking to, but for the whole world. And he says, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. So not only does he love us sacrificially, he loves us as a friend. He loves us in such a way that we he clearly would sacrifice for us as we if we look at the sacrifices that he made not only on the cross but before the cross if you think about the sacrifices of his mission while he was preaching in Judea and Galilee and other areas he didn't have a home to go to he relied on family and friends and disciples for a place to lay his head that was a sacrifice that he made for us but then going through the beatings that he endured, the six illegal trials, yeah, if I said six. Most people think one, but if you look legally at the definition of a trial for Romans and Jews, he went through six illegal trials on Heath Holland's behalf. He went through six illegal trials on Jerry Corbin's behalf. Everyone in here, he went through that for you. The beatings that he endured. If you've ever had a chance to look at a description of what a Roman beating was like. It's horrific. It is one of the worst things that a man can endure, to have your flesh ripped by that flagellum that was created to inflict the, the greatest of pain. He went through that and then had to endure such a cruel execution. So Jesus loved sacrificially. If he loved sacrificially, who am I as a Christian not to love my fellow christian sacrificially not to put my fellow christian before myself who am i to say that i am any better than jesus christ not only did he love sacrificially but he loved genuinely as we see in romans we should love genuinely as we see in romans 12:9 where it says let love be without hypocrisy we should love genuinely one another brian should know When I tell him I love him, when I tell him I respect him, that I don't go around behind his back and talk to him about other people. He should trust that I love him genuinely and I'm not a two faced Christian. He should understand that what I say can be counted on. When I tell him I'll do something for him, any of you should be able to count on me as a Christian to fulfill my word. That's how my love should be. If we think about Christ, He didn't love us hypocritically. He didn't profess his love and then avoid Calvary. You know, he could have avoided Calvary. When we look at the angels that were at his disposal, we sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels, and he could have avoided Calvary, but he did not. Instead, he said, not my will but thine be done, and that's how he loved us, genuinely, and he fulfilled his word. Third, I need to love obediently. Just as seen in John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Not like the golden rule. If you remember what the golden rule says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Jesus says that you love one another, even as I have loved you. You see, the love of Christ goes beyond the golden rule. The love of Christ goes beyond doing to others as you would have them doing to you. The love of Christ goes to the point of self-sacrifice, self-suffering on the behalf of other people. So I see that I'm to love sacrificially. I see that I'm to love genuinely. And I see that I'm to love obediently. The benefits of loving our brethren are too many to mention. When we love our brethren... First off, we find fellowship. I can't tell you, since 1999, the times I have been encouraged by this congregation. That's when Lisa and I placed membership here. We had young Andrew, and Lisa was pregnant with Caitlin. And we were immediately welcomed in and encouraged and loved. And through the years, we have been loved over and over again. And I've seen those examples from you towards other people in this congregation time and time again. We also when we are when we love our brethren we find purpose. As we just read in John chapter 13 verse 34 the commandment that's given to us to love one another as Christ loved us. That's our purpose. Our purpose is to be loving and kind to one another as Christians. So when when I love sacrificially when i love genuinely when i love obediently i'm fulfilling the purpose that has been given to me and lastly when we love our brethren we find family (coughs) you know jesus in john chapter 15 called us friends but in fact paul writes that we're brothers we are brothers and sisters in christ And that's how we should see one another. We might have squabbles. I can tell you my brother and I growing up had plenty of squabbles. My kids love to hear stories about the fights that we had. But we love each other. And if anyone messed with my brother, they would have to come through me. The encouragement we find in our Christian family, the protection we find in our Christian family, should make us feel comfortable, should make us feel at home, should make us feel we are where we belong. So not only should we be living fruitful lives, not only should we be empowered to love others, last but not least, abiding in Christ, help me there, Travis, there we go, abiding in Christ, equips us to persevere. If you will, look at at, uh, John chapter 15 again, starting in verse 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not sinned. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated hated me without a cause. (coughs) So we find that abiding in Christ helps us have perseverance in promised persecution. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He told us that the world would hate us. Remaining in Jesus equips believers to expect persecution and to be able to persevere in persecution. The world, as Christ said, hates him, and by association, the world hates Christians. Christians, in uh, verse 18 and 19, we find we fool ourselves if we think we can walk in fellowship with both the church and the world. We, we cannot. In another scripture we read that you cannot serve God and mammon. We must choose who we're going to serve. And I, I've heard it explained this, this way before, that there's not like a spiritual adoption agency where we can remain there until we choose which side we're going to be on. We can't ride the fence. We've either chosen to follow and abide in Christ or we've chosen to abide in Satan. And we may have to make that choice each and every day as Christians. Verse 21, we find persecution will come because the world does not know God. It may pretend to know God, but it does not know God. That's evident by studying the scriptures, which is part also of abiding in him. If you study scriptures and compare scriptures with what the world says about Jesus, what the world says about true religion, you'll find that they don't match up. You'll find a disparity between those. And it's because the world does not know God. Verse 26, we find Christ sent the Holy Spirit as a helper. That's part of our help as Christians through the word. We have the inspired word of God, the apostles had the Holy Spirit as a helper as they wrote the Bible for us. Christ sent that, the comforter for us, so that we could endure temptation, hardships, and struggles. We can have strength to withstand perseverance because we have comfort in the word of God. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, James wrote to tell us that trials produce perseverance and spiritual maturity. There's a purpose in the difficulties that we face in this world. It's not just because um, God doesn't care, it's not just because He likes to see us go through trials and persecutions. It brings us spiritual maturity and it brings us long suffering, patience, and pers- perseverance. There's a purpose. And the last thing I want to point out about perseverance during persecution is Romans eight twenty eight. We all know that verse. And what does it say? For all things work to good for them that love the Lord according to his purpose. For those in Christ, notice that it says those in Christ. All things work to good. Sometimes it doesn't seem like things are working to good because we have difficulties. We have struggles. We have things that occur that we are not feeling like we're prepared for. But if we are abiding in Christ, we can have faith that things are working for good. We may not understand it today. We may not understand it tomorrow. But God has a plan, and we must have faith in that plan. So in conclusion, Abiding in Christ means intentionally remaining in an ever-growing relationship with him that transforms our character to be more like his. It is a deliberate choice to abide in his word, in his example, and in his purpose. It gives us the ability to bear fruit, to love as he loved, and to endure hardships. We can't thrive as God would have us to if we aren't tied into the vine. Maybe you've never been connected with him through baptism, or maybe you've allowed the world to sever your connection with him. Why not take this opportunity to make your needs known today as we stand and sing?